Well, like I said earlier, thank you all for being here. It's good to see you. Tonight we're going to continue on in Genesis, which I know that's surprising each week. Uh, but tonight is a special night for me. It's one of my favorite topics, which may, might sound weird to you, I don't know. Uh, I like talking about suffering. It's, it's something that's near and dear to my heart. So uh, my favorite book of the Bible is Job, which if, I guess if you know me for a bit of time, that make, you'll, you'll understand that about me. That's my favorite book of the Bible. Uh, because I think a theology of suffering is so key to what it means to be a Christian. It's so key for living life. So often, and, and I speak, I recognize we're Americans in this, so we have a lot to be thankful for, a lot to be joyful about uh, in comparison to many situations in the world. But uh, I think it's good for us, especially who live in relative comfort, uh, to, to think upon those things because dark moments come. And they're never far. The human experience is actually one of suffering. It's a universal human reality. And uh, because of that, I think it's always good to talk about. And tonight is a perfect time to talk about it. Tonight we'll be going through Genesis 39, verses 21, that last three verses of chapter 39 that I, I left out last week, and then the rest of uh, all of chapter 40 this week. So our sermon tonight will go from Genesis 39, 21 to 40, 23. And I've titled tonight, The Righteous Sufferer, because that's what we're going to see in Joseph. That is who Joseph is. So if you have your Bibles, feel free to open to Genesis 39. Uh, the text will be up here if you don't, so don't worry about it. It's up here. But this is a key passage, and, and I love what it has to say about the situation. Now, if you remember where we left off last week in Genesis 39, it was a, a dark place to leave off. We saw that Potiphar's wife, is, is forceful with Joseph, is trying to essentially force him to lay with her. And he runs because he says, I cannot do this sin against my God. How could I do that? How could I sin against him like that? When my master put everything in my charge, how could I do this great sin? And when she forces herself upon him, he runs, he flees. He flees out into the fields. But again, we recognized he can't flee far. He's a slave. He's caught in this situation. And of course, what happens is uh, Potiphar's wife comes home and she tells a different tale. He tried to rape me. He tried to force me into this. And, and of course, Potiphar's infuriated and he sends Joseph to jail. And we left Joseph there in, in jail. Not sure, uh, as often we are in suffering, is God even here? Is he with us when we suffer? Well, I cut off very specifically because the next verse is going to answer that question for us. And that's where we begin tonight. We begin in verse 21 of chapter 39. This will go forward. There we go. But, but the Lord was with Joseph in prison. And he extended kindness to him. And gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. Now you may know this word kindness. I'm going to tell you what the Hebrew is behind the word kindness. It also could be translated loyalty 
or covenant faithfulness. This is a word a lot of people have heard nowadays. It's one of those Hebrew words that made it into modern consciousness. It's the word chesed. Chesed. It means covenant loyalty, covenant faithfulness. It's a term used explicitly to relate to God's faithfulness to what he has promised. And I think we miss something sometimes when we just seek kindness. Because when the Lord is chesed towards someone, it's talking about his faithfulness to the promise. And what it's specifically saying about Joseph is this, that the Lord's going to fulfill the promises of the patriarchs to Joseph. He has not forgotten the promises he made to his father and to his grandfather and to his great-grandfather. No, those promises still apply. When it looks like from the text that Joseph's lost any sight of a land, any sight of a descendant, any sight of a blessing, how could he be a blessing to the nations in prison? When it looks like all is lost, the Lord has covenant faithfulness to Joseph. He will bring the promises to pass. That's all wrapped up in the word kindness. So, the Lord showed him kindness and he gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, Joseph was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. Just like we talked about last week, everything he touched flourished. And now Joseph is in jail. It looks like he's fallen farther than we could have imagined, and yet still, everything he touches succeeds. It works. It's flourishing. It's blessed. So, It came about after these things. The cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. This is the pharaoh. So the cupbearer and the baker, they end up offending him. It actually is the word sin. They sinned against him. right? They sinned against pharaoh. They offended him in some way. And they're sent to jail. Now, we probably don't understand this, but this is significant Because these are royal officials. These are not nobodies. When we tend to think of these people, it's like, he's a baker. Like, who cares? These are actually royal officials. They're in in important positions. In fact, for example, the cupbearer. We should be familiar with that idea of the cupbearer because we know a famous Old Testament cupbearer of the Jews. His name was Nehemiah. Nehemiah was cupbearer to Xerxes, right, in in the book of uh, Nehemiah. And so what, what does he function as? Well, really, he functions as a confidant, a confidant for the emperor, for the king. And so this cupbearer becomes very close with the person they serve, and, and they be kind of con- become this advisor. And remember what happens for Nehemiah. Nehemiah has so much favor with, with the emperor that he sends Nehemiah back to the land of Israel, even though they were in exile. He says, no, we, we need to have your people restored we need to make sure that your people are restored. And 
and he goes back and builds the wall. Remember that story in the book of Nehemiah. Well, it's the same thing here. This cupbearer who's sent to prison for offending, for sinning against the king of Egypt, he's a confidant. He's close to Pharaoh. And the baker, this is the one in charge of all of the food that the royal house gets. This is not just, uh, you know, bakery down the street like we might think of it. This is, these are important positions. And you'll see it reflected because if you remember, Joseph is in charge of everything. And when these two officials are put in jail, what does Joseph do? It says, Pharaoh was furious with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. So he put them in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard in the jail, the same place where Joseph was imprisoned. And the captain of the bodyguard put Joseph in charge of them, and Joseph took care of them. And they were in confinement for some time. So Joseph becomes their personal attendant. It's the same word that was used of Joseph as being Potiphar's personal attendant. He becomes their servant. These are important people. They're royal officials in jail. And so Joseph is sent to serve them, to take care of them. And so that's Joseph's job, his main priority, is to take care of these officials. And of course, if you know this story, they're worried. They're nervous. Because who knows what could happen when the king is upset with you? <laughs> A lot of different outcomes. So, the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt, who were confined in jail, both had a dream the same night. Each man with his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning and, obs and observed them, behold, they were dejected. He asked Pharaoh's officials who were with him in confinement in his master's house, why are your faces so sad today? Then they said to him, we have had a dream, and there is no one to interpret it. Then Joseph said to them, he's a, a good theologian, so Joseph says this, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell it to me, please. See, Joseph is going to try and interpret this dream for them, and what you have to understand is that dreams were significant to ancient peoples. They're, they were for them, they were an understanding that the, the gods were speaking to them. That there was a message. This was the, some sort of reality. This was the connection with the, the supernatural world. That there was something spiritual and supernatural about a dream. And so they, in, they inherently interpret that. But they have no, they're in, they're in jail, they're in prison. They have no soothsayer to go to. They have no prophet to go and say, hey, tell me what this means. They're in jail. They have no idea, but they're concerned because the dreams are elusive to them. They are hard to understand in their eyes, so they want to understand, but they have no recourse. And Joseph says, no, no, no. It's not to these diviners. It's not to soothsayers that interpretations come from. They belong to my God. Tell me your dream. I'll interpret it for you. So, the cupbearer starts. The chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream, behold, there was a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches. And as it was budding, its blossoms came out, and its clusters produced ripe grapes. Now Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, so I took the grapes and squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup. 
and I put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. So this is a very familiar dream to the cupbearer. It, it relates directly to his role, doesn't it? This is what he does. But he's mystified by it, and so Joseph interprets it for him. It's clear to Joseph what it's about. Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. That's an idiom for honor. To lift up the head is to restore to honor, right? It's the idea of looking down in shame. And if someone, say the king, were to come and lift your chin, it's a restoration of honor. Okay? It's not looking down in shame any longer. It's being restored. And so this lifting up of the chief cupbearer's head is, is that he will be returned to the place of honor that he once held. So you will put Pharaoh's cup into his hand according to your former custom when you were his cupbearer. But Joseph sees this is his chance to make a case for himself. He says, hey, now that I've told you this interpretation, remember me, keep me in mind when it goes well with you. Listen to the assurance that Joseph has that his interpretation is correct. He's like, hey, I already know this is going to go well. Remember me when it does. When it goes well with you, do me a kindness by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For I was, in fact, kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews. And even here, I have done nothing that they should have put me into the dungeon. The baker listens to the interpretation. He's pretty excited all of a sudden. <laughs> hey, this went pretty good for this cupbearer. So the chief baker, he saw that Joseph had interpreted favorably. So he said to Joseph, hey, I also saw in my dream. And behold, there were three baskets of white bread on my head. And in the top basket, there were some of all sorts of the baked food for Pharaoh. And the, for Pharaoh, and the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. Then Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and will hang you on a tree and the birds will eat your flesh off of you. Now that's a dark vision. But again, Joseph's assured of his interpretation. The idea of what he's talking about, and it's, it's, it's kind of sad, but there's a, a poetic symmetry between the dreams. He will lift up your head. Now, in one sense, he's going to lift up your head to restore you to honor. In the other, he's going to cut it off. He's going to lift up your head from your body. The point of this is that the baker, he, he's saying to the baker, you're going to be executed and you're going to be what's called exposed, exposure. That's when a body is displayed for effect, right? You're going to be hung out. And you're going to be shown as an example of what happens if you sin against Pharaoh. And the dream that you had of the bread being eaten off of your head is actually the birds coming for your flesh. It's a dark vision. But again, Joseph's assured. So, what happens? Thus it came about on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday. A significant event. 
and very common for kings and, and other uh, royals to do special things on their birthday, to do special um, pardoning or special executions, things like that. And of course, it's Pharaoh's birthday. So he made a feast for all his servants and he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He has something to say to each of them. What he did for the chief cupbearer was to restore him to his office. And he put the cup into Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had interpreted to them. It's significant before we get to the last verse to talk about this. Joseph's dreams come true. So Joseph, as a dream interpreter, he is accurate. He knows what he's talking about. He's interpreted correctly. And what we forget is that Joseph has already interpreted dreams, hasn't he? Now, we should remember, as we walk through the account of Joseph, these dreams and his interpretations came to pass, which should make us think, what about the other dreams? And the other dreams were the dreams about his family bowing down to him. Now, those haven't come to pass. He's in jail. In fact, they look further than ever. When he first told them and they were living in the land, maybe there was some semblance that they could come to pass. Now he's in prison in Egypt. He's in a completely foreign land, and he's the lowest of the low, a slave in a prison. The idea that those dreams could come to pass is next to impossible. We just saw Joseph's dream interpretation is accurate. It's correct. It's meant to call us back in the story to think about the other dreams. Are those going to come to pass too? How? How could that happen? How could that happen? It just doesn't make sense. But we should be holding on to that as we follow the story. So, the chief cupbearer is restored. The chief baker is killed. And yet, the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And isn't that the way? Joseph interprets this man's dream. He, he, he gives him hope from despair, freedom from the darkness uh, that he was unsure of what was going to happen. And immediately the chief cupbearer gets back to his normal life and, and Joseph is just a blip on the radar. I mean, it doesn't even register for him. It doesn't even, doesn't even cross his mind. Now we're stopping here for tonight in the text, but the next verse, the first verse of chapter 41 is going to tell us he forgets about him for two years. This is not a minor forgetfulness. Two years, Joseph wastes away in prison. I know I typically kind of apply as we go through this story, but I wanted to save it till the end tonight because I wanted to make a point about righteous suffering. And I wanted you to hear the points together. And, and I know this is kind of different than my usual MO, but I wanted to save this part until the end to explain the the reality of what it means to be a righteous sufferer from this passage. 
because it's significant. I think there's three key points we need to draw from it because we look at Joseph and we, we can't see anything other than a righteous man suffering. He has done nothing to merit this, nothing to earn it, no darkness that has been exposed to us by which we could say, yeah, I guess I could kind of see how Joseph ended up here. It's like all these events have just aligned to just crush him. Totally out of his control, totally out of his power to change. He's a righteous sufferer. And I think there's three points from this passage we can draw. The first is this, and I'll go back so you can see the text I'm talking about. <clears throat> Sorry, here we go. It's this. He, Joseph is a righteous sufferer, and one of the most important things about righteous suffering is to maintain your attitude of compassion. See, one of the things that we often forget, and I've said this many times in my life, because again, I told you, I, I love suffering, talking about it, thinking about it. I just recognize the importance of it theologically. And here's one of the things I've said countless times in my life. Suffering is not inherently a path to righteousness. Not inherently. Suffering leads people to a choice. And there's one of two ways suffering can go. It can make you a better person. It can make you a more righteous person. It can make you a, a more authentic person, a real person, a person who understands the world as it is. But it can also make you a bitter person, a dark person, a person consumed with their own victimhood, Legitimate or not. I'm not saying it's illegitimate to, to feel like a victim. Joseph should. He is a victim. But he could let that control his life. He could let that be definitive for him. And those are the two paths of the sufferer. They must choose the path of bitterness and, and anger and all of the darkness that comes in a heart that is rotted by pain. Or they can choose to become a righteous person, a more godly person. They can let suffering temper who they are. They can let the fires prove the character and value of, of what God has made them become. And one of those ways is we see whether people lose compassion. Suffering draws out of people either compassion, which by the way, if you don't know what compassion means, the actual meaning of it in Latin, it comes from Latin, is to suffer with. Passion, you, you've heard of the movie The Passion of the Christ? It's called that because passion means suffering. The, the prefix come means with. It's to suffer with. That's having compassion for someone. And in this case, it either draws out the compassion of who you are, you learn to suffer with people, or you become jaded. Now I know, I've, I've known a lot of different people, and I've known a lot of jaded people. And that, that hardening of your heart 
is that, that path I talked about, the path of bitterness, where all of a sudden it doesn't matter to you what anyone else could be going through. All you can see is your own pain. All you can see is your own suffering. And really, you couldn't care less about what happens to anyone else. Where's Joseph, the righteous sufferer? Joseph, the slave. Joseph, the one whose brothers said, let's kill him and throw him in this pit and see what becomes of his dreams. And then Judah said, no, 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 let's sell him. At least we'll make some money off his back. Does Joseph have a lot he could be bitter about? Absolutely. But where's Joseph's heart? He observed these men and saw that they were dejected. And he asked, why are your faces so sad today? Because Joseph is a man of compassion. Joseph could have Joseph could have been angry. Why am I having to serve these guys? You know, one thing we miss in the text is this. They had sinned against Pharaoh, like I told you. That's supposed to be a contrast. Because who didn't sin? Joseph. In fact, he said it. How could I sin so great against my God? Well, the the answer is he didn't. He chose not to engage with Potiphar's wife. He ran from it. He fled And yet these men legitimately sinned against their Lord, Pharaoh. And yet still, he looks on them in compassion. Number two is this. Sorry, this is. And this is true of a righteous sufferer. And maybe you've never heard this before, but I want to tell you it because it's true and it's biblical. Righteous sufferers are willing to be honest about what's actually happened to them. I love this line from from Joseph. Keep me in mind when it goes well with you. Do me a kindness because I was kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews and even here I have done nothing, nothing that they should have put me in the dungeon. I have found that modern American Christianity loves to play the game of, well, there must have been some secret sin. There must have been something Joseph did to deserve this. There must have been some, you know, you know even, even when you're doing good to people, you can still have that bad motivation. See, they're unwilling to recognize a righteous sufferer when they see one. It's the exact mentality of Job's friends. The whole point of the book of Job, Job did not sin, and he was suffering. And the minute you go, you know what? But let's be honest. Job had sinned before. Yeah, that's true. You've destroyed the story. You've destroyed the story of Job because the whole point of Job is that Job did not sin and suffered. And you know how I know he didn't sin? Because the Lord says so at the end of the book. He says, in everything Job did, he did not sin before me. And he actually tells Job's friends to make Job offer a sacrifice for them. Because they were sinful in what they said to Job. That's a righteous sufferer. We have this tendency 
to just look at people. There's got to be something. There's just something wrong. That must be part of it. That's a Job's friend mentality. They spend the whole book trying to convince him that he's actually sinful. And every time he rebuts them. No, I didn't do it. I have not done it. What could it be? Now, the Lord does rebuke Job. He says, you don't understand the plan of the world. You don't understand my administration of it. And I still have compassion on you, Job. But it's never said in the text anywhere that Job sinned. The Lord actually says specifically that he did not. And that's one of those things. We've got to learn to be real about our suffering. That doesn't mean we can't be self-aware. We've got to be self-aware. We've got to look at ourselves and examine our hearts. Is there something in me? Did I do something? That's a, that's a good impulse. We should examine ourselves. But what's not good is to pretend that we always somehow have this ascetic mentality. We, we, we must have earned this. We must have earned this awful thing that happened. Joseph doesn't do it. He says, I was kidnapped, and I've done nothing that merited me being here. Because he knows his righteousness. He's assured of his righteousness. He knows I have followed the Lord. And at one level, we just got to be better at following the Lord. But at another level, be reminded of your identity. If you're a Christian, you are holy before God. Don't live in sin, of course not. But when you're suffering as a righteous person, not because of something you've done or some sin, but you're suffering for, for no reason, no reason, no merit. That we can call that like it is. We can admit to it. We, we can have the humility to be honest about that. There's a false humility, and it is false, that says, well, I, I must have done something. I'm, I'm just humble. I must have done something. That's false humility if you haven't. True humility looks like an accurate assessment of a situation. Neither thinks too highly of yourself nor self-deprecates. Humility is an accurate assessment of who you are. Lastly, Aaron, I'm going to have you come up uh, and you can just play as we talk about this third point. And at some ways, it's the most important. It really is. Uh, the two things I just said, they're, they're important. They're very important. But the most important is this. And the reason it's the most important is because it's about God and who he is in suffering. That final verse is haunting. Yet, the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot the righteous sufferer is convinced of something. The righteous sufferer knows something, and it is, it's woven into the fabric of who they are as they followed God. See, following God is key to being a righteous sufferer because if you followed him, you're going to have made the character necessary to suffer righteously. And what the righteous sufferer knows is that man forgets God remembers. The chief cupbearer forgot Joseph as soon as he was out of his situation. But Joseph was not forgotten. 
One of the key words that is used in Genesis of God when he's about to act, when he's about to act is this. The Lord remembered. <laughs> and all too often, man is marked by our forgetfulness. We forget all that God has done for us. We forget uh, the, even just the day before what he had done. The prayer he answered. The, the, the sweet moment he gave you with your kids. The blessings of of your spouse or or, or your home or countless things. Things too many to count beyond measure that we could possibly fathom. And we forget over and over. It's a characteristic. It's why Deuteronomy is so, so assured over and over and over. It tells us, remember, put these things before you over and over and over. Why? Because you will forget. But the one being, the one being in all of creation, in all existence, that does not forget is the Lord. He is a a person of remembrance. And we've seen it throughout Genesis because we saw Noah. And we saw that Noah was the last man, a man with favor upon him. And he was a righteous man who was blameless and walked with God. And he was saved out of the destruction of everything. Lord's, the Lord's regret at creating it. And Noah, was, was pers- he was preserved. He persevered through this horrible situation. And his whole family was saved because of it. And they're on that ark, and the whole world's being destroyed, and everything looks desperate and miserable and despairing, and they have no idea what's going to be on the other side. And what does it say in Genesis 8? And the Lord remembered And he doesn't remember like we remember. We remember, well, what did I eat yesterday? And then we're kind of like, oh, yeah, it was like a sandwich or something. We, he doesn't remember like us. Remembering for God is a call to action. Every time the text says, God remembered, what's the very next thing he does? He acts on behalf of his people. Not like us, like, oh, yeah, I, I remember that friend. Yeah, maybe I should text him oh, a week from now or a couple weeks from now. To be fair, I am the worst at texting. But as everyone who has not been texted by me knows. Uh, but that's how we remember. We're not called to action. It's just a mental thing. The Lord remembers and he is moved by the memory He remembered Noah, and he preserved him, and he brought the waters down to save his servant. And then in the the Jacob cycle, when we were going through Jacob's story, there was this beautiful wife that he had, and of course she was barren, and she was desperate, and all she wanted was a child, and her sister keeps having children over and over and over, and she can never produce She can never offer her husband the honor she wants to offer. She can never have her shame taken away because she can't be a mother, which was extremely precious in that society. The way that a woman found worth. 
And just like the generations before when, when Rebecca struggled with it and, and Sarah struggled with it, Rachel struggled with it too. And she spends that entire chapter watching her sister have child after child after child after child. And what's it say at the end of the chapter? It says, and the Lord remembered Rachel. And immediately after, she conceives. The Lord remembered and he opened her womb and she conceived. And who did she conceive? This boy. This boy right here. Joseph. And Joseph's here in jail with no hope, completely alone. And even the man that he, that he helped forgets him. But the Lord remembered. And we're going to see that. We get to see that in the next few weeks as we walk through this story together. The beauty of the story that God had planned for Joseph. Which was a story not just of Joseph being brought back to honor. Though it is. It was also a story of his family being reconciled when it was broken. It's a story of people starving all across the ancient world. And Joseph is the one with the wisdom to save them. Joseph's suffering, his righteous suffering, it doesn't just bear fruit in his own heart. It bears fruit across the nations. Because he chose to suffer righteously. He saves his own honor He saves his family. He saves the whole world, it says in the text. The whole world from a famine. Because he chose to trust in this God, the God of the promises. And the Lord remembered him and brought it to pass. So, my prayer for you tonight is this. If you are suffering righteously right now, you'd be encouraged by these things you'd be encouraged by the fact that the Lord has not forgotten you. He remembers you. No matter what your situation is, there's all kinds of suffering. It could be a billion different things. Whatever you could be suffering, suffer righteously. Suffer like Joseph. And trust that God remembers. And secondly, if you're not suffering, and and you know what? Praise God if you're not. If you're not in a position where that's a reality for you right now, that there's you know a, a suffering component to whatever you're going through, I pray you'll tuck these things away for later, because that day will come. It's inevitable. Human life is filled with suffering. Until that day comes, when Jesus returns, and we, the new Jerusalem comes down for us to live in, and the wicked are are taken out of the city and just the holy remain, those committed to Jesus, suffering will will continue to exist. And we've got to prepare for those days before they come. The preparation of them is what makes us able to survive them and survive them in the way we want to be.
to be the people we want to be in those situations. So I pray that if, like I said, if you're not in that situation tonight, I pray you'll tuck these things away and remember them. Remember to be compassionate even when suffering. Look for others' needs and their pains too. Remember to be real. It's okay. It's okay to be real about where you're at. To recognize, you know what, I didn't deserve what happened to me and it's happening and it's awful and I hate it. And you know what, I'm mad at God. All of that's okay to say. And you know what, if you get the response, you know, if you get a trite response, if you get some kind of cliche response, you just know how to suffer better than they do. Because so many people don't know how to respond to people's pain. They are looking for something that will bring comfort. It's all going to be okay, which helps no one. I've never heard anyone be like, that really comforted me. Thank you. People are weak. We fail. And there will be a lot of people who offer that kind of comfort. But I'll tell you what. The Spirit comforts you when you can be authentic with Him, when you can be real with Him. And, and true Christian brothers and sisters, not that people who make that make mistakes. I'm not saying that. But, these, but deep, godly men and women will recognize it's okay to be real where you're at. And they'll try to have compassion too. To suffer with you. To walk with you. To see you where you're at. And try to encourage you, of course. But also know that it's okay to sit. It's okay to sit. Like Job. and Just sit in it for a while. God honors that. God will honor your suffering if you choose to bring it to him. The key is to suffer with God. It's okay to have questions. Have questions and bring them to God. Don't just have questions about God. Bring your questions to God. That's the difference. Because he'll see you through anything. I promise you. He can see you through anything if you stay in relationship with him. And lastly, never forget. Never forget. There is never a situation so dark, so hopeless, so satanic, so evil that God does not remember you. That he is just not there. The Lord was with Joseph and he's with you. And he wishes to be with you in deeper and ever greater ways than you could even possibly imagine. In ways that you haven't even begun to dream about living relationship with God, that's what he wants for you. He wants it more than you want it. So, trust that he hasn't forgotten you. He remembers. He remembers and he will act. And sometimes that takes a lot longer than we want. From the time of Joseph's imprisonment to when he gets out in the next chapter, 13 years, 13 years he languished in prison. It's not our timetable, and that's hard. But he will remember and he will act on your behalf. prayers, we'd all learn to be righteous sufferers. Because in righteous suffering, 
I think we connect with Jesus in a way that we don't at other times of our life. Because if there's anyone who could be called by that name of the righteous sufferer, it's Jesus. Did not merit anything he received. Perfect, blemishless, and suffered immensely. And in suffering, we have a view of Jesus that we just don't always have. We can relate and identify with him in a way that we don't always relate and identify. And some of, some of us may think, well, how, that's, maybe that's arrogant to relate with Jesus. Jesus wants us to relate with him. We know our struggles are not comparable to his. We're not that foolish to think that they're comparable, but Jesus wants us to relate to his humanity. We should. So I pray we'd all be righteous suffering.